Welcome to episode 24 of the first season of Justice Center Weekly, the video cast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm your host, Kevin Steele, and with me is lawyer Andre Mamari, who hails from the Great Prairie Province of Saskatchewan. Andre was in court this week seeking intervener status on behalf of a couple of groups in the high-profile case in which the UR Pride Center for Sexuality, Gender Diversity is trying to strike down the province's parental consent policy, which now requires that schools seek and receive a parent's consent before they change the name and gender of a child under 16 years of age. Andre, I understand you had a couple of full days in court at the beginning of the week and in a very full courtroom. Why don't you tell us about it? That's right, Kevin. Um, this is uh, a very high-profile case uh, in relation to the issues that are before the court. Uh, and, of course, by, the, by virtue of those types of issues, it's a, uh, it's a very um, uh, heated case in that respect. Um, we indeed uh, were in court uh, in Regina on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, on Monday, the court heard from the proposed interveners uh, with respect to their application uh, to be granted standing. And on Tuesday, the court uh, was, uh, in fact, in session from 10 a.m., I think, until uh, late in the afternoon, 5.30 or so, deliberating and, and uh, hearing arguments uh, from the parties themselves. The interveners were, were not permitted to uh, have a position with respect to the injunction motion. And, I, and with that respect, I, I do want to indicate that the court is in the process of deliberating uh, with respect to that injunction hearing. And so I will um, contain my comments with respect to this matter, really to give you an understanding what the case is generally about. I, I want to certainly afford the court uh, as it's making its deliberations uh, uh, that opportunity to do so without further comment. Okay, well, maybe we'll just sort of describe the injunction phase a little later, but let's start with the interveners now. I understand that you did win intervener status on behalf of a couple of groups, and maybe you could just tell us about those groups. Absolutely. Um, so we, we're in a unique position in that regard. Our application uh, effectively is uh, for joint interveners. That means that we represent two different groups together who come in as joint interveners who essentially submit the very same position from two very different groups. Uh, there are other interveners. All of the uh, proposed interveners were granted by the court to have intervener status. The other interveners are uh, CCLA, uh, LEAF, uh, the John Howard Society, um, and they were separately each uh, independently granted intervener status. And our joint interveners uh, that we represent are two groups. Uh, one is called Parents for Choice in Education, uh, which is an organization out of Alberta, uh, as well as Gender Dysphoria Alliance uh, out of uh, Manitoba. Um, now, Parents for Choice in Education has been uh, active for approximately 11 years. Uh, they do a whole wide um, ambit of work with respect to their uh, desire to have parental authority recognized in the education system and really empower parents in the edu education sphere with respect to their children and the education system. And, and they do quite a bit of work. Uh, they were involved in 
uh, a case out of Alberta, uh, both at the uh, King's Bench and uh, Court of Appeal level with respect to a very similar case uh, that had proceeded uh, initially in 2018 uh, and then proceeded to the Court of Appeal. That case was never, uh, the merits of that case was, was never actually heard. It was really the injunction that was heard and the injunction matter proceeded to the Court of Appeal. So Parents for Choice in Education has some experience with respect to these types of issues that are before the court, um, similar types of issues that are before the court uh, as they proceeded in, in Alberta. Gender Dysphoria Alliance is a, is a very interesting organization. It's headed by two transsexual men, um, both of whom um, have uh, an experience as adult men with respect to uh, their identity and having gone through these sorts of uh, identity matters that uh, are the subject matter of these proceedings. They have an advisory board uh, consisting of um, psychologists, psychiatrists, clinicians, um, uh, physicians, um, and really experts in, in, in the area of gender dysphoria. Um, and so they come at it from, from, from that lived experience uh, and from, from that angle. And importantly, they, they have um, all, they do all, they're a new organization uh, that I think has been around for, for two years. Um, and so they've, they've uh, in, those, in that short period of time, have engaged in uh, all kinds of work, including international appearances of conferences and, and so on. So they're, um, they're very interested in that area. Uh, now, the joint interveners come together um, with respect to uh, support uh, for parental authority and parental rights um, that it goes beyond really parental authority. Um, it's really understanding the framework between the parent and child relationship, uh, particularly with respect to minors. And um, I don't really want to go into the merits of that, but what's interesting is that y you have uh, a group uh, of, of those uh, with respect to Parents for Choice in Education and Gender Dysphoria Alliance individuals, two very different organizations with very different um, outlook in terms of the work that they do, who have an interest in this matter and who together come uh, to, to really the same conclusions. And so I think that's a very unique um, uh, uh, set of joint interveners in, in this very important case. Okay. Now, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the format of what you can submit, how much time you're given, that kind of thing. Each intervener, I understand, is given a certain amount of time. They have given a, certain, a limit on size of the uh, their submissions, that kind of thing. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the limitations that are placed on you as an intervener. That's right. Thanks. Um, so we have uh, 15 minutes to submit. Uh, at the hearing of the merits, which is scheduled for uh, November tw November 20th and 21st. Uh, we have a page limit uh, as to our submissions of 15 pages. Um, and this is normal. Uh, it's uh, okay. part of the course for interveners to be, because uh, of course they're not the parties. The parties in this matter uh, are uh, UR Pride um, for short uh, and the government of Saskatchewan. Um, in fact, there are also 27 school divisions who were independently uh, also named as respondents in the proceedings. The school boards collectively uh, have um, 
come to take no position with respect to any of the matters before the court. Uh, so it's unless they change that position at some time down the line, which I think is unexpected at this point, um, this really is uh, a case between two parties, uh, UR Pride and the government of Saskatchewan with respect to the government's policy. The interveners um, hope to provide a unique perspective, uh, and, and the court always um, is in a position to um, provide guidance in terms of, in this case, as the court has, as to limitations as, as to, to ensure that this doesn't uh, get out of hand. And, and the interveners have a say, and the court has granted all the intervener, interveners to have a say. Um, so the joint interveners will make submissions, uh, both in written and oral argument, later in November. Okay, maybe just a little bit on the format of that. Is that you standing up and delivering their submissions orally, or are they standing up? Or are they presented as witnesses? Just give me an idea or an understanding of how the intervener presents his argument. Certainly. Well, uh, I, as counsel for the joint interveners, um, I anticipate that I would be the one to make submissions, though uh, uh, that there may be um, another uh, lawyer possibly um, uh, who would, uh, from our organization, who would represent the joint interveners who makes, would make submissions. That's not anticipated, but it is anticipated that their counsel, at this point being myself, would be making oral submissions, uh, and then and we would be submitting our uh, written submissions as well. The joint interveners do not themselves, uh, unless they, they of course, uh, uh, kick me to the curb, uh, they themselves would not be um, directly making oral or written submissions, nor are interveners, um, and nor are they typically uh, provided an opportunity to submit evidence. Um, that it's very rare to have interveners submit evidence. It really um, balloons the case uh, that really is between two parties, um, and in this case, none of the interveners uh, at at the hearing of the inter intervener hearing. Uh, are, had been requesting to submit evidence. So they won't be submitting evidence. They'll be relying on the, on the record and their own unique perspective that they uh, submit uh, based on the record uh, that, that they will um, present to the court for deliberation. So neither of the parties then questions the interveners. There's no like redirect or anything like that. They don't you know, no, question you on your submission. That's the thing, right? Well, they, they, the, the parties do have an opportunity to reply to the arguments made by the interveners, okay. uh, but uh, they don't uh, direct or cross or there's no examination of interveners as though they are witnesses. Uh, the interveners are really there to provide um, sort of an overall, uh, uh, they, they have an opportunity to, to look at the record and from their unique perspective, uh, and skill and expertise to the extent in, in which their unique perspective derives to provide the court with their unique perspective that, that, the, that they wish the court to factor in and consider. Um, parties, uh, each of which get an opportunity to provide, if they so wish, replies to any positions held by the interveners on those specific issues and with respect to their unique perspectives. Okay. Now, in terms of this submission, which is a joint submission, is this something where the two interveners huddle up and come up with uh, one submission, or do they 
you know, break it down into two parts so that you have a distinct understanding or demarcation of what position is what? Uh, no, in, in, in really with respect to the interveners, the other three interveners, they're independent interveners and, and they can take independent positions with respect to various issues. And, and I think the other interveners had uh, submitted um, uh, arguments with respect to the unique path that they wish to submit uh, their particular area of uh, uh, submissions. The joint interveners are a little different because the joint interveners um, together have come to the same conclusion. And it's unique in that sense, uh, in that um, they both come to, uh, again, they, they come from very different um, uh, interests in the matter, and but yet they come to the same points. Um, which um, I think is very interesting for the, for the court's consideration and overall deliberations. Okay. And this is to be delivered when you said it's the hearings uh, scheduled two days for November sometime? At the, at the present time, there are two days scheduled, though the court uh, uh, has granted uh, the possibility of a third day. And I'm, I'm certain if, if more is required, then, you know, then, uh, then the parties will request more time. Uh, there are currently two days scheduled uh, with a possible third day if necessary. Uh, I'm confident that uh, uh, hopefully within that time frame, the arguments will, um, will, will conclude with, with what is allotted by the court at this point. Okay, because that seems rather short for such a, a big case, I guess, but uh, I'm not sure you probably have more experience in that. Does this seem like the, uh, the average amount of time? Well, it's hard to say at this point. It, this has been a very fast-moving case. Uh, the the uh, uh, matter really surfaced very late in August with um, with um, essentially a, a cease and desist letter or a demand letter by EGAL and UR Pride, uh, and uh, or very early in September, the matter um, immediate was 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 commenced, and it's quite remarkable, really, um, that uh, there were. Uh, I counted at one point, I think there were 16 lawyers in the court um, with gowns on in this matter. So it's, it was quite a, 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 um, an arena of, of lawyers. And um, I think that um, one thing that is shared uh, amongst the lawyers uh, is that, um, and, and stated as such, is that really this is about the best interests of, of a very vulnerable group of people. Um, in society. And so um, in terms of uh, your question as to is, it, is this normal in terms of the time frame, it is a very fast moving uh, case. Uh, there's a, uh, certainly on the part of the applicants, uh, there, as there is a, an application for an injunction, which is currently being deliberated by the court. Uh, I understand that UR Pride had um, made previous requests for their injunction uh, by way of uh, an interim injunction request without notice, which is really essentially that UR Pride had uh, made submissions every um, every time the matter turned over to the court uh, for for an immediate granting of an injunction, and the court um, per really permitted the government to have an opportunity to present uh, its case before really considering an interlocutory injunction. So the, the court was. Um, unwilling to immediately just grant the injunction without having heard from both parties to, to a reasonable degree. 
uh, and the government um, provided its evidence for the interlocutory injunction. The court now has um, sig- significant evidence, uh, particularly from the UR Pride, but also from the government. It's not unusual for an injunction proceeding to happen very quickly and expeditiously. Really, injunction motions or applications are, uh, with respect to matters that are urgent, uh, the applicant, uh, UR Pride, in this proceeding, uh, its position, and I don't speak for them, but to my understanding, their position um, clearly is that uh, there is a, a significant uh, urgency to the matter. And so they, they have that before the court for consideration. And of course, the government's position is very different uh, with respect to its interpretation of its own policy and, uh, and any, if any, uh, harm um, would derive from that. And um, again, I don't want to comment too much about the merits of the injunction and uh, to afford the court uh, the respect as it makes its deliberations on that particular application. Okay, yeah, but I guess it's worth mentioning the news stories that came out surrounding this, and I, I probably can't get you to comment on the fact that the uh, Saskatchewan government <clears throat> said that they would consider using the notwithstanding clause in this issue, so that tells you how uh, what a hot-button issue it is. It is a hot-button issue, uh, and um, it's, it's, it's an issue that uh, has seen litigation not only in, in Saskatchewan, but I understand that uh, uh, there's litigation in New Brunswick, uh, and there's also litigation in, in the United States. Uh, and this is an issue that's not unique to Saskatchewan. It's an issue that's taking place, uh, in various places. And, and it involves issues that, um, has, um, been, uh, part of the, uh, social dynamic of Western society in Europe as well, in the Scandinavian countries, in the UK, uh, though I'm not familiar with with cases at this point with with respect to a uh, a policy of this particular nature, um, but uh, but yes, this is a this is an issue that uh, is 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 not unique to Saskatchewan. It's unique to Saskatchewan to the extent in which this particular um, uh, policy itself being challenged in this way. Um, but uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, similar type of uh, um, issues existed in, in, in Alberta uh, with Bill 24, which I understand has been repealed. Right, and also should uh, note that the, this subject was the a focus of protests right across the country on the day after the hearings that you were in. Uh, so the, that would be in the Wednesday. There was uh, the Million Parent March for Parental Rights or something like that that uh, made quite a, a splash across the country from coast to coast. So it's not just Saskatchewan where this issue is being debated, of course. So That's right. I, I am familiar with the march, though I don't think the march uh, is in, in response uh, specifically to this case. Um, perhaps uh, it, there, there may be awareness uh, of the case um, by those marching, but um, yeah, t- you know, I have no comment really about that. People are free to express themselves as long as it's peaceful, and that's uh, the way our democracy functions. Yes, uh, I simply wanted to draw uh, attention to the fact that you know the issue is very broad right across the country. Even though the focus right now, at least, at least with this case, is on Saskatchewan, it is uh, something that's I guess happening across the country, even if they don't have the same type of case before the courts right now. That's right. I think the only uh, similar 
type of case before the court. I, I, I'm not familiar with it yet, so I don't want to comment uh, more than I'm aware of. But I understand the New Brunswick Section 713 policy uh, is um, a little bit different, um, but is also a matter that um, is 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 an issue for deliver- for consideration by uh, by the courts. Well, maybe we can just get you to sort of describe the issues involved in this case. Just give us the general outline so that people can get an understanding of, you know, how the interveners are going to play out and, and the, uh, I guess, how the case is going to play out. Just give us the, the synopsis of the issues. Absolutely. Uh, so in August of, uh, uh, I believe it was August 22nd uh, of this year, uh, the government announced a policy after it had, um, after it indicates it had uh, examined the uh, policies of the different school divisions with respect to this particular subject area, and it came up with a policy, um, the uh, pronoun and uh, change of name policy, which essentially requires uh, children over the age of 16 to uh, change their name or pronoun at school without parental consent, um, and those pro- under the age of 16 would require parental consent uh, in order to do so. Uh, in response, um, UR Pride uh, commenced a originating application alleging that the policy and its details uh, essentially violate Section 7, the security of the person, um, as well as Section 15, equality, uh, on, on those two bases. And um, so really the, the court is going to determine this on a section seven and section 15 um, aspect. It's, it's not considering, it is not before the court to consider human rights challenges or anything of that sort. It's, it's, this is about security of the person. And in this case, being a vulnerable group of people, uh, young, young children as, as young as five, uh, to, to the age of 16, um, requiring parental consent and, and essentially parental involvement in a decision for uh, a change in social identity. Um, and so the court is there. It's a very complicated case. Uh, and there's given the issues, it's a, it's a very complex matter. And so the court is going to make uh, uh, deliberations about that subject area with uh, with respect to those const- on those constitutional grounds. Okay, so just to clarify, then this really is a charter case. Then it's not a human rights case; it's a charter case. Indeed, it is a charter case of uh, historical precedent, in my view, with respect to those issues, because it really speaks to um, the dynamic, the family dynamic, uh, as between parent and child, and from the perspective of the joint interveners, without going too far into the merits, the joint interveners, from their unique angles, both come to the conclusion that parental involvement um, is a positive thing, and that parental involvement is 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 essentially a child's right, uh, a child's security of the person to their parents with respect to any developments, whether social or otherwise, is is should be the rule, not the exception, uh, and. Um, I think it's 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 a common understanding that parents love their children and that they want the best for their children. They're the most invested in their children. They have all they bear all the legal responsibilities for their children uh, with respect to 
numerous issues with respect to education and the Education Act, with respect to um, uh, the, the wellness and upbringing of them in terms of being fed and so on and so forth. Parents have significant legal responsibilities. And so our understanding is that they too enjoy those legal rights. But those legal rights also need to be understood in terms of it's not the parent's rights against the child, but rather the parent's right to the child is a mirror of the child's right to the parent. And it's this symbiotic natural relationship between the parent and the child, which provides for the development of the child. And of course, there's always uh, exceptions to that rule where certain parents are not positioned to provide the best of care for their children. And that will always remain to be the case and always has been the case. And there's always been, um, maybe I shouldn't say there always has been, but we certainly there certainly are uh, uh, systems in place to um, for the for the state to act as local parentis for uh, uh, for children where where their parents are are not capable. But again, this is a very complex issue, um, and and the, there are many interveners from various angles who will provide the court with all kinds of different considerations and deliberations to be had. It's not a very simple black and white issue. But from our perspective, um, it's important to consider that. Uh, in, in light of all the complexities of the case, that uh, that the parent-child relationship is not undermined. Okay. Well, and there is one, one other thing oh, I, I wish to add with that. Um, forgive me, Kevin. Which is that uh, it's it, it's it's about the parent-child relationship, the child-parent relationship, but also the parent-school relationship, which really factors into the security of the child as well. Um, Angry parents at the school system is, is, I don't think, something anyone wants to see. And so a functioning education system necessarily requires and always has been the case where parental involvement and consent for various aspects of a child's uh, time at school uh, is, is, is required. Uh, and it's important to have a strong and healthy parent-school relationship uh, that is for the benefit of the child. Uh, otherwise, a um, undermining that relationship would, uh, in our view, with respect to Parents for Choice and Education, would be something that would be damaging. Okay. This uh, sounds like it's going to be a, a real barn burner of a case at any rate. And obviously, because of the interest across the country, I think that a lot of people are going to be focusing in on those dates in November. Thanks so much, Andre, for uh, taking the time to update us on this case, and I hope to speak to you again real soon. Thank you, Kevin. Good to be with you.